0: You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. This is episode 22. I'm Greg Wilson, and I'm here with my co-host, Rob Nahupi. Hey, Rob, how's it going?
1: Greg, it's going well. Happy Wednesday to you. And um, yeah, we got a few different things to talk about today, so I'm excited for today's podcast.
0: Yeah, fresh back from a hearse audit, so I've got some questions for you from your experience last week back home, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. I won't get into too many details, but I did get a, go participate in a HRSA audit uh, for one of our clients, and uh, it, was a, it was a great trip, um, and um, I actually learned a few new things that we'll share today.
0: All right, great. Let's start with, with news and noteworthy items in the 340B space. Uh, ongoing. Uh, tightening of contract pharmacy restrictions. So we've got a 23rd manufacturer now that's implementing some level of restriction on the contract pharmacy side, Tiva. So may, first major uh, generic uh, manufacturer has got uh, a number of uh, restrictions. So allowing for a single designated contract pharmacy, if you don't have uh, your own retail pharmacy as a covered entity, that pharmacy needs to be within 40 miles. You've got to upload claims to 340 b ESP. There's no exemption for health system owned or wholly owned contract pharmacies. And uh, for tiva grantee covered entities are exempted from all of the restrictions. So fairly similar to what we've seen with a lot of the other manufacturers that have uh, hopped on board lately. Yeah,
1: what's uh, you know what's interesting about uh, Tiva is you know they do have generics. I think it's one of our bigger first generic manufacturers um, that's hopping on board now. They do have some branded products. Copaxone probably being the big one that we're going to see a big hit for covered entities on, um, but but also some of the generic drugs they have in their mix. But yeah, forty-five day rule, the forty mile rule. I mean, everything, you know, the very, the more just starting off with the more heavier restrictions that we've seen from some of the manufacturers. So I think that one's going to be tough, but yeah, that, that definitely marks number 23
0: for yeah. manufacturers. And then two of the other manufacturers that have had implemented uh, restrictions to date have made some updates to their policies. So Exalexis has removed the wholly owned exemption uh, option and Bosch Health has added some additional requirements. So they're now, again, single design- allowing a single de- designated contract pharmacy if you don't have a retail pharmacy, otherwise there will be no exemption for health system owned or wholly owned contract pharmacies that single designated pharmacy has got to be within the 40-mile uh, region, and you've got to upload claims to 340B ESP. Interestingly, Bosch is one of the manufacturers that is applying these restrictions to grantee-covered entities as well. So uh, no exemption for FQHCs, CHCs, and other grantee 340B-covered entities. So that's about the, the, the tightest of all the restrictions you see out there in the, um, in the manufacturer space.
1: Yeah, exactly. That, that one's tough too. So just another one where, you know, when, and I look now, I so I'm looking at the total 23 manufacturers and, you know, when it comes to who you can actually submit data for on ESP and get all of your contract pharmacies back. So if your hospitals out of those 23, there's only four left. So yep. 19 of them, if don't allow you to upload data. Now there's a bunch of, them if you don't have an in-house retail pharmacy and you have a single contract pharmacy that you still have to upload data. I think if I'm mistaken we have to five of those. Um so I guess there's nine that you'd be submitting data for potentially. That's only if you don't have an in-house retail. Um yeah. so and, and I guess like we should say there's still a couple that that allow if you do have an in-house retail you can add a single contract pharmacy, but you have to upload data on both your in-house retail and contract pharmacy. And I'm not I'm not aware of anyone who's taken that offer yet. Uh um, right. <laughs> sending data in your in house retail. But you know I guess I guess we should be thorough and put it out there that that is an option if you're if you're so inclined to do so.
0: Yeah. All right. Another update this week. I think we saw this from a 340B health update. Uh, CMS submitted their plan for repayment to 340B covered entities that were subject to the Part B uh, Medicare payment uh, cuts starting back in 2018. Uh, CMS submitted that plan for approval by the White House. We're waiting for uh, the Biden administration to sign off on that and then see what um, CMS is going to publicly release in terms of the uh, proposed rule.
1: Yeah, that's pretty exciting. I mean, that's something they said they would do in 2023. So, um, in fact, I think they even mentioned Q2 at some point. Um, so I guess they have a couple of weeks left. But I think they knew that because it was going to be part of their, you know, 2024 um, kind of outpatient payment rules. And as part of that, usually you, you have some preliminary things come out, you know, in July-ish so yeah but i'm definitely excited to see how that's going to be and, and and how that's going to work and where they're going to get the funding from from that since we know that they allocated a lot of, a lot of those dollars out to the hospitals based on their dish percentages so
0: yeah those um, are budget neutral changes so mm-hmm. you know if, if they're looking at a lump sum repayment back to all of these 340b provi- providers it'd be interesting to see how that's budgeted
1: yeah yeah so that's, that's actually exciting news for the hospitals that were impacted there um, especially with this manufacturer you know we speak with a lot of hospitals and health systems, and and a lot of a lot of health systems, you know, from a budget perspective, um, have taken a pretty big hit with this manufacturer restrictions. You know, for many of these hospitals, that's especially our smaller rural hospitals, that's a big part of how they keep the doors open, let alone provide charity care. And um, unfortunately, some of the rules probably won't receive a lot of dollars back because they're exempt from the reductions. Um, but your dishes and r- uh, dish hospitals, rural referral centers, they'll hopefully get some of those dollars back because they, too, are being impacted by the contract pharmacy restrictions and um, you know and they every dollar counts these days.
0: Very good. Um, how about her audit experience? Tell us a little bit about what you um, saw during your her audit last week.
1: Yeah I'll, I'll hit some highlights and maybe things that hopefully will give any of our covered entities um, some some things to go back and look at with their with their 340B program. And some of these, you know, we've seen HRSA do previously, but some of these are at least new or newer based on the last two HRSA audits I attended. I actually participated in three, I think, within the last six six weeks. So one is um, purchasing account screen capture, right? So one of the data requests um, that HRSA has is to provide a list of all of your current accounts. That's 340B, GPO, and WAC. Well, sometimes people forget a few accounts or don't list some because they're not using them. And during the during whether it's remote or on-site, you know, um, the Hearst Auto asks a buyer to open up their main wholesaler account, and typically click on the drop-down of all the accounts they have access to, and then they want a screen capture of all those accounts because they want to map all those accounts back to your spreadsheet or document that shows all the accounts that you told Hearst you had, and they're checking to see if you missed any, and and so I guess the take-home message there is make sure you're doing that ahead of time, and and because if there's accounts maybe that are on there that are are for that are you're not using or or uh, for whatever reason, then, then have them removed or, or closed down. Um, now, sometimes buyers also may work at multiple sites, so they have access to multiple hospitals. So just make sure you're also ready to say, oh, these three or four accounts are for another hospital. Um, now, in theory, um, you know, you can group multiple hospitals into one um, account, but may, it might be cleaner to have separate logins per hospital. Also, so you don't make errors in selecting the wrong accounts, but that is something they look at. So you have to be prepared to talk about that, but make sure you know what's under your buyers and your own dropdowns when when you open up your wholesaler accounts so that was a big one that i thought hmm. we should probably warn people on that one
0: yeah great tip you know 5c is that data element on the data request list for the account list you do want to kind of validate that um within the, the wholesaler application that you're using so it's a good a good double check
1: yeah another good one was um you know uh, hearse has been talking about you know besides your regular wholesaler accounts you know when you order things that auto decrements from your um, split billing vendor so that's 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 you know, ideal, but then there's uh, direct order accounts. So those would be wholesalers or sub wholesalers or um, other wholesalers or direct manufacturers where you might purchase from either 340B or GBO, and it's there isn't an EDI fee that automatically decrements those purchases under your accumulator. So you have to manually do those decrements. Um, and there's also consignment um, outside of I think Cardinal. Um, if you're using Cardinal as a wholesaler and Cardinal's consignment, who, who will auto decrement for you? Almost most other uh, consignment vendors, you have to manually decrement as well. And so one thing we saw in this audit was not, not only that we could speak to the process of direct orders and consignment decre- manual decrementation, um the auditor did ask to see one of the purchases and then based on that invoice we have to go in and show that it was decremented the manual decrement occurred um and that and that you know for some covered entities sometimes it's hit or miss and so just make sure you're very thorough and have a a very good process for making sure that all of your consignment and direct orders or anywhere you don't have an edi feed for those decrementing that you're that you're decrementing those on a Pretty close to real-time basis, right? If, if you're doing it at the end of the month, you might use those accumulations more than once, and that's a problem. So, at least probably at minimum a weekly basis, making sure that um, you're decrementing real time, but then some kind of QA process to make sure you didn't miss any. Uh, yeah. So that was another one that was critical.
0: Yeah, though, I think if you if you take a, a, a very a longer win, window or longer interval to con- complete those those decrementations of accumulations, you run into the risk of Uh, developing some some negative balances and if you make some formulary changes or there's product availability issues you may be sitting on a negative balance if you're not reconciling those direct orders on a on a more frequent basis so good good tip to look at that more often rather than later
1: yeah and my third one which isn't new but but i do want to highlight because um because there I thought there's a little extra wrinkle in this one um it's you know during sampling both on your um, provider administer drugs um so your mixed use if your hospital or even clean site or if you administer drugs if you're a, a grantee if you do administer drugs and also on retail slash contract pharmacy um they they typically pull some some subset of little samples. I used to say three to five. Um, that's what I've seen. I will say on this last audit um, I attended, we actually looked at six on the provider administered drug side, So it's more than I was used to. And when we do that, we're actually looking at the accumulation in the accumulator, right? So for that exact accumulation, did it accumulate correctly? Um, the auditors then typically look to see if you have purchasing, right? Did you purchase on 340B after that, so are you actually buying that? Accumulates? You know, was it? They're kind of almost surrogately looking. Did you accumulate on the right NDC? Because then you would have purchasing after. Now sometimes you don't hit full pack size on like a big bottle or something like that. So that would be okay. But what was interesting, um, in addition to looking at purchasing on that side, they also looked at purchasing on WAC. Right? If you're if you're a dish hospital or subject to the GPO prohibition, did you buy on WAC? Or if you're not, did you buy in GPO first? If it's a mixed use situation, if it's clean neutral, site neutral inventory. Right. Yep. Right. They're, they're trying to check for that neutral inventory base. And which is tricky. Like we had one for one of our samples as it's just, you know, they had started a macro helix a few years back. Well, you know, if they have pretty good accumulation, you may not see a whack purchase because it's been a few years. And if you're you know, had, you know, some positive accumulation and you keep hitting full pack size because it was a drug that you don't, um, it's, it doesn't have to build up to a pack size. When you dispense it, it's typically a full pack. So if they dispense it, they get an accumulation, they're buying it in, you know, GPO or 340B based on where it was administered or what the patient's status was when it was administered. So, so but you do want to make sure that you, you you know, as you're doing your own sample testing on a monthly basis that you're looking at that as well. So you can get pretty good at doing that in accumulator, but here's the change, the reason I'm bringing this up because that, that's not new that's something Hearst has been doing for a while. Other than looking at six instead of three to five um, on the administered drug side, but here's the one that caught me off guard. Um, this particular auditor also looked at total accumulation. So, you know, as we're looking at accumulation. Um, there were some comments on, oh, well, that's negative. Does that mean you've overpurchased and, and you know, explain that? And so so for each of those accumulations, they did want to see what the actual total accumulation was on 340B and GPO. So it caused yeah. a little bit of sweating because, you know, that's, that's something everyone looked at ahead of time. you are like, OK, well, hopefully it all looks OK. And it was fine. The, the client, this particular covered entity, did just fine. There's some there's one that was slightly higher, um, but we could show that there was a drug shortage. So we used up what we had on the shelf. We weren't able to repurchase. And we actually ended up changing NDCs. We could yeah. show that with some history, but we have to look at all that history. So I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's a lot of detail." Um, so I could see where it could come off the rails if if you didn't have great accumulation, or if you're accumulating the wrong NDC, or or you, your you you know your multipliers were wrong, so you had massive accumulation, or if you had some corrections and you had negative accumulation. So, you know, it's one thing we always recommend is uh, making sure you're looking at your total accumulation, negative high accumulation, and negative accumulation to see if there's errors or things you can resolve or fix, um, so that. When, if when you get to this part of a rehearsal audit, if those drugs are selected, it doesn't look as bad and at least you understand what's going on. So I'm not sure if you've seen that as well on your any audits you've attended.
0: Yeah not, not typically seeing you know the the auditor look um, or inquire about aggregate accumulations depends on the TPA sometimes that that information is visible as you're showing the patient level. Uh, the, uh, accumulation. So it it may be more obvious, but in, in maybe a large positive or a large negative number might might stick out and prompt some some more questioning. But, you know, I think, you know, you know, right now the process for HRSA is to provide you with the samples a couple days ahead of time. So you at least have the opportunity to stage some of that documentation. So if you need to go back to old wholesaler records to show an initial whack purchase, or you need to provide a little bit of clarity around maybe a, a drug shortage scenario that resulted in maybe buying on a 340B allocation and that puts you into a, a negative balance, and you've got some physical inventory on hand to account for that. You do have some time to gather all of those um, those those pieces of the story to simplify and, and streamline the actual uh, sampling portion of the audit that occurs with the Bazell auditor. So encourage folks to you know, make sure you you stage some of that documentation to to ease the process of the on-site visit. Yeah.
1: And one thing, last thing I'll mention is, you know, I think the auditors all pretty, follow a pretty similar script, but the way they do it or how detailed they get in certain areas can differ between auditors. So we continue yeah. to see some inter-auditor variability, but, you know, they're, because they, they all have to collect the same data, it's, it's not that different. But, you know, looking at total accumulation versus some auditors who may not have looked at total accumulation, that, that could be an inter-auditor variability so you may not see it with your auditor but just know that we've, we have seen it now at least with one of the auditors um, and we I don't like to mention names or anything on the podcast um, um, and, or of, of covered entities or the auditors themselves but definitely reach out to us if you have any questions and you're going through an audit and, and might want some help or some guidance. Awesome.
0: Great update Rob. Reminder. So we've got Coalition coming up. This uh, we're, we're recording this mid-June so uh, less than a month from now we'll be in Washington for a Coalition. We've got uh, booth 809, that's on the right side of the exhibitor area set up. So we'll, we'll look forward to seeing folks. If you're attending the 340B Summer Coalition Conference, um, I've got a presentation that I have to do at I think it's like 6:45 in the morning on Wednesday. So I don't know if anybody's going to be up for that. <laughs> Rob, you're probably going to be walking, doing the charity walk, right? I don't know, Greg. I kind of I've done the charity walk every time
1: for the last decade plus or 12 years. I've been attending. Well, you can't
0: break the streak, right?
1: Right, I've 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 even if, if there's only like two of I've last last uh, I think winter we had Heidi speaking at the exact same spot which is a bummer so Riley and I went and represented the walk and uh, I think most of the team went in and watched Heidi speak so we might have to divide and conquer but uh, yeah I don't know Greg you're I'm, I'm a big fan of yours I I'm, I don't know if I break the streak or not on this
0: one I don't know I, I feel like you've you've heard me talk enough doing this <laughs> podcast so you're you're exempt from having to attend I'm not a morning person so six six forty five is going to come. Pretty early for me.
1: So. Excellent, excellent, and uh, and I think we did. Um, you know the, the way the hotels work, we only had um, only had two spots at the main hotel, but I think we were able to get you in at the main
0: hotel. So yeah, I won't so. have to travel far, but still have to get up and find coffee before six thirty. So <laughs> we, I'm sure we can make that happen. Yeah. All right, let's take a a quick break. Uh, on the other side of the break, we're going to jump into our main topic of discussion today: Medicaid duplicate discounts. So a nuts and bolts conversation around how to prevent. Uh, Medicaid duplicate discount findings. The 340B Unscripted podcast is brought to you by SpendBen Pharmacy. Do you wish you had another 340B expert on your team to help you manage your 340B program, but there's no time or budget available to hire an FTE? The SpendBen Pharmacy 340B staff augmentation solution provides you with an industry expert to help manage your 340B compliance tasks. Visit spendmen.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how you can maximize your 340B efforts. All right, welcome back, everyone. We're uh, going to jump into our discussion now talking about Medicaid duplicate discount prevention. So, Rob, this is a really complicated aspect of 340B program compliance, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, in the intro, I didn't mention it, but that was the other big area during her audits, which is why we're talking about it today. We want to make sure that everyone's compliant with uh, Medicaid and duplicate discount because, yeah, if you look at the 2022 numbers for HERSA audits, duplicate discount and Medicaid exclusion file findings are pretty high percentages, uh, like a large percent in both categories. So when you combine them, it almost feels like that means well over half of the covered entities audited um, either have a duplicate discount or a Medicaid exclusion file finding, and that's that's pretty significant.
0: Yeah, yeah, Uh, Medicaid exclusion file and duplicate discount findings rate or rank, I guess, two, number two and number three in terms of frequency. So OPA database findings are the most common, about 50% of audits that have findings, um, uh, have OPA database findings. But the next most common area of non-compliance is in your management at the Medicaid exclusion file, which we'll talk about, as well as some duplicate discount findings. Um, Let's let's start and just kind of set the stage here and and frame the requirements. So duplicate discount prevention is a statutory requirement, correct? Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, it is. It is a requirement um, to for for compliance with duplicate discounts, since that is in the statute.
0: Yeah, so lots of discussion lately about enforceability and the you know the fact that the manufacturer restrictions on contract pharmacy are all done you know have all been implemented because subregulatory guidance is is not binding. But duplicate discount preventions, part of the PHS statute, covered entities cannot seek payment from Medicaid on drugs that they bought from their 340B account uh, which are drugs that are also subject to a repayment Uh, for a rebate back to the state. Covered entities have to have mechanisms in place to prevent duplicate discount and HRSA must have mechanisms to ensure that covered entities comply with duplicate discount prevention. We'll get into what that mechanism is in the form of the, the Medicaid exclusion file. If you fail to prevent duplicate discount findings or duplicate discount issues in your 340B program, these are issues that are part of the HRSA audit scope. Uh, failure to prevent duplicate discounts is going to result either in a corrective action plan uh, for your covered entity or in some cases a repayment back to the impacted manufacturers who submitted rebate payments to the state on 340B pay drugs. So significant uh, implications if you are unable to manage the requirements around duplicate discount.
1: Yeah I mean it's, it's one of the few areas on duplicate discount that does require financial payback and we've seen that can be significant. So um, something you definitely want to get right. Um, also, you know, if you think about it, it's one of the the big drivers, at least the perceived drivers or the vocalized driver for manufacturers restricting contract pharmacy is the noncompliance on the on the Medicaid side. Even though we know they're looking at commercial and Medicare as well. But but you know, it, to be fair, if if there is some noncompliance, they continually get rebate requests from Medicaid state offices where they can't confirm there's actual purchases from that pharmacy, which Likely mean they're, you know, through a bill to ship to um, 340B account or uh, or 340B account in general. So, um, I, I think it's, it's it's fair to say that um, Medicaid duplicate discount compliance does does have some issues. And, yeah. and you know, our goal today is to help kind of identify the various areas we see issues, and so to help everyone who's a covered entity uh, correct those issues.
0: Yeah, it's a good point that you brought up. The manufacturers have kind of stated duplicate discount as a rationale for needing more policies in the contract pharmacy space. But when we talk about the statutory requirements, it's specifically limited to Medicaid fee-for-service, right? What about managed care Medicaid? How does that intersect with the statutory requirement to prevent duplicate discount?
1: Well, here's what's tough, right? I, I think for most of us recognize that um, managed care Medicaid or MCO Medicaid, as we like to call it, um, should apply, right? Um, in general, the way it works, So let's, let's probably give a slight um, kind of timeline on this, though. The last time HERSO published something around duplicate discount was in 2001. That's really, if you read in 2001, you see kind of updated uh, Federal Register notice on duplicate discount. And in 2001, only fee-for-service Medicaid was allowed to seek rebates for manufacturers. It wasn't until the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, in 2010 that managed Medicaid was then included in the rebate submission um, from Medicaid to, to manufacturers. Um, and so what's interesting is the way it works is the, the managed Medicaid plans don't directly seek rebates from the manufacturers. The managed Medicaid plans have to submit all their data to the state or fee-for-service Medicaid plan and the state fee-for-service Medicaid plan aggregates that data and then seeks rebates from the manufacturers. So if you think about it, right, the hard part for HRSA is they haven't updated their language since 2001. So how can managed Medicaid be included in their 2001 um, federal register notice Yep. because managed Medicaid only started in 2010. So that's why even though we've seen the GAO and all their 340B reports, they report they almost always talk about, hey, you need to do something about managed Medicaid. It's a duplicate discount. I think HRSA feels, well, we can't because we we don't we actually don't have rulemaking authority around this category. Although it's in the statute and they can interpret the statute, they don't have rulemaking authority around this. So they can't publish a new rule that says managed Medicaid should be included. And so I think HERSA's hands are a little bit tied on this, which is why they They will look at it, but you won't see a finding for managed Medicaid. However, that doesn't stop manufacturers and state agencies, state Medicaid offices, from trying to enforce managed Medicaid. So it is a weird place, managed Medicaid, right now, as far as HRSA is concerned.
0: Yeah, yeah. It comes up in discussion during HRSA audits, but when you look at any of the language in HRSA audit reports – um, you know, managed Medicaid really gets addressed in the area of AFI. So, HERSA will commonly encourage covered entities to look at policy and procedure and make sure MCO is accounted for in PMP. But the actual um, potential risk for findings only applies to failure to prevent duplicate discount in the managed or the Medicaid fee-for-service uh, payer category.
1: Yeah, but and, and to be fair, this is where you know I. I think this is where some of the issues come in, right? So if, if a covering takes a more um, a, a looser stance on this, is well, I'm only going to focus on fee for service Medicaid, that's where my risk is with HRSA, then you have this managed Medicaid piece. And, and I, I look at it from being just good business partners. You know, I know sometimes um, you know manufacturer drug manufacturers and covered entities are kind of pitted against each other in the 340B program. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I have this grand vision that we all work well together because we all have to take care of patients. It's all about patient care in the end. And you know, creating affordable care and all these things. But, you know, as good business partners to the manufacturers, if I don't, you know, right? So think insulin, for instance. It's, it's, it'd be hard if I'm Novo, uh, Nordisk, or Eli Lilly, if I'm selling these vials for 10 cents, you know, on the retail 340B side, and then I'm getting a rebate for managed Medicaid claims, and that rebate guarantee is more than 10 cents, I'm losing a significant amount of dollars on these just because it's Medicaid managed care. So they're going to have to deny these rebates, but, you know, they can't always identify them, right? It's, it's this hot mess. So I always tell people, you know, I, I know. Hearse is not going to enforce this but I think yeah. the right thing to do is to make sure for us to clarify that duplicate discounts a duplicate discount whether it's fee for service or managed Medicaid yep. so you know let's let's make sure we prevent it and that's something during our audits we always preach right so we get yep. it but but the other thing is states sometimes do enforce this because they're getting denials on their rebates and now they're coming back to the cover and saying hey what's going on you didn't tell us this was 340b um, yep. and so so again probably where some of that's come from.
0: Yeah, I think that's good guidance. You know, even though it's not going to fall into the scope of a HERS audit, you know, you shouldn't ignore it, need to account for it in your kind of overall 340B program oversight. Yeah. So let, let's jump into strategies around compliance or requirements around compliance with this part of the statute. And it all starts with the covered entities carve in carve out determination that is made during enrollment. So when you enroll a new 340B covered entity into the 340B program, you have, you have a decision point to make. Am I going to use and bill Medicaid for 340B drugs or am I not going to use 340B in my Medicaid population? So what are some of the decision points that covered entities factor into their carve in, carve out determination?
1: Yeah, you know, and we're, we're helping uh, one particular covered entity enroll in the program today. And this, a big part of our implementation was conversations we had with the billing department and the capabilities to meet all the needs of of what's required to build, to carve in. Um, and so, and here's where it gets tricky, and I know we'll get into some state-specific requirements, but, and, and this is just how we're set up in the United States. Every state might have a slightly different way or version of how you're supposed to bill them if you're going to carve in 340B to their medicaid program right some states have or simply go with the the medicaid exclusion file so just putting your billing number typically your uh, npi on the medicaid exclusion file is is all you have to do Um, now sometimes you have to do that plus you have to do actual acquisition cost pricing so that's one decision point do you have the capability or ability to actually bill at actual acquisition costs then from there it gets a little more dicey then it gets into modifiers Right. Some states, many states have some kind of modifier requirement. And and I think modifiers make the most sense. And I think more and more less states are going with pure NPI because it's an all or nothing proposition. It doesn't really tell them, well, are there drugs that we can seek rebates on because you didn't um, buy on 340B, right? Non-covered outpatient drugs is a good example. Um, so most, many states have some kind of modifier requirement. The general modifiers, a UD modifier, which most people know about, but then we have a handful of states that use something else. So their question is, do, does your billing department have the capability to do a modifier for, for certain drugs, and then on top of the modifier add actual acquisition costs for those drugs, and can they be consistent about it? And when can they implement it? Um, right, sometimes we have a covered any go live carving out because the billing department just can't figure out that process by the time they go live. Because, you know, say say you enrolled in April, well, you've got 15 days left. Come July 1st, you have to start adding those modifiers in AAC for anything that you're going to accumulate and buy at 340B. And so just determining, can you make that happen with your billing department? So you should have those discussions early if you're a new covered entity. I don't know, Greg, thoughts, thoughts from you, anything else there that you would think about?
0: Yeah, the, you know, I think, you know, the the challenge that I've seen with modifiers, so state-specific modifiers, again, as you mentioned, you know, making sure billing has the capability and the flexibility to apply the correct modifiers at the right time and for the right payer, you know, so those modifiers are going to be required for not just the primary payer, but secondary and, and uh, tertiary payers as well. So if there's a process by which the Medicaid modifier gets removed, if we're billing out to managed Medicare, and then, you know, sending a secondary claim to Medicaid, you're, you're still on the hook for the appropriate Medicaid mod modifier if we're submitting a drug claim for the uh, the secondary bill.
1: Yeah, uh, Greg, there's another thing that I think is worth mentioning. It's it's that mandatory carbon. You do have some states that are mandatory yeah. carbon, right? Um, I think California being the biggest one. Um, and so if you, if you, is Illinois the other one?
0: Yeah. So yeah. So again, when you're making the decision to carve in or carve out at the point of 340B program enrollment, you've got to look at what your state requires. So California and Illinois are two states that uh, mandate that 340B covered entities include Medicaid in their uh, 340B program operations. And then we've got some states that mandate carve-out. So New Hampshire, North Dakota, South Dakota mandate that a covered entity exclude Medicaid patients from their their 340B program. Delaware and Wyoming are interesting because they're set out to do a carve-out by default unless the covered entity submits a request in writing that they're going to carve-in. So there are state-specific mandates that determine whether or not you can elect to either carve-in or carve-out. So you've got to be paying attention to that.
1: Yeah, that's that's. I just had a recent Wyoming one too, and yeah, having to submit a form because carving just made more sense for them,
0: yeah.
1: especially with um, clean sites, right? Is it can I can I jump to clean sites?
0: Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about. Well, let's talk about. Yeah, if you've elected to carve out, so if you've made a determination that we're going to carve out Medicaid, I and mean, that's either for your in-state Medicaid or for any out-of-state Medicaid, what what are the things that covered entities need to look out for when they've made the carve-out election? all right good so
1: if you're carving out i've got uh, it's I, I think i coined the phrase at least i haven't heard anyone else say it but there's no such thing as clean and carve out that's yeah. my, that's my anyone can borrow that there's no such thing as clean and carve out and what i mean by that is you know if you have an infusion center or i think we were talking about you know any offsite, you know clinics or you know even if an off-site um urgent care ed that's they're qualified 340b locations a lot of people say well they're always outpatient um they are always qualified out patients. We don't have any non-qualified patients there. So we're just gonna go clean site. And when we say clean site, what we mean is prospective 340B purchasing, right? In theory, if a location has its own drug storage or drug purchasing processes and all patients qualify for 340B, you can buy everything on 340B. You still have to make sure you bill, you know, Medicaid correctly if you're carving all those things. But if you're carving out, then you can't go clean because that means a subset of your population. Um, is is not 340b eligible, right? out essentially means Medicaid patients. You're not going to buy 340b drugs for. So there's no clean and carveout. And and I think prospective 340 purchasing or clean sites do create an opportunity for um, better savings because you're not having to b- buy that first drug on GPO or WAC if you're subject to GPO prohibition. Um, also, you don't have to worry about you know what happens with waste billing and all these things that that will cause some loss of accumulation, which will result in you know, further GPO or WAC purchasing. You kind of eliminate those things. Now, there's some other things, you know, we will not get into details, but if you're doing clean site, then you do have to do a little bit more on the quality assurance side, on your self-auditing side, because you do have prospective 340 purchasing, that inventory has a higher risk level on it. Um, so you have to kind of factor that in if you're going to consider it. But But if you're carving out, then you can't go clean site. There's no such thing as clean and carve out, uh, is as I said. So that's one thing yeah, to I, think about.
0: If you, I guess, unless you have assurances in place, you know, at your organization that you're not going to be seeing any Medicaid patients in that clean site location. So, like a, fr- a family pra- practice clean site clinic or a primary care clinic, you you, you may be able to, you know, confidently say, Hey, yeah, we're not going to accept any out of state Medicaid here. But if it's an infusion center or an off site ED or urgent care location that's operating as clean site. There's a good chance that you're going to have some out-of-state Medicaid patients filtering through that location, so it's it's difficult to state that that's going to be a clean 340B only eligible location. Well, it's a good
1: point. If you're if if you're carving in your state, right? So then there's that mix. I guess we should point out there's there's carving out all Medicaid, where you're just not going to build any Medicaid. But then there's well, we're going to do our state, and we have a lot of covered entities that just do their state because that's 98 percent, 99 percent of their Medicaid. But they have that one or two percent that your out-of-state Medicaid people drifting through. If you're in a state or a city that's got, you know, um, kind of a visiting population, like you've got an attraction or something that people come and visit, um, you know, if, even um, we take care of some sites down in New Mexico and Albuquerque, and you know, they don't get a ton of, of things, but they have this huge balloon festival. So all these people come down to this balloon festival, and that's where they see the most out-of-state Medicaid is during this period of this this massive um, hot air balloon festival. So. So if you have those things in your area, you have to think about are the, are we or if you're in a bigger thoroughfare, you're gonna have just you know auto accidents and people coming in with you know, who potentially have out of state Medicaid coming through your ERs. And I think Greg, that's that's a good point. The, depending on the service, we're an infusion center and maybe a clinic. You're not gonna have out of state Medicaid. So if you're carving in your 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 state but not the out of states, yeah. then you might be okay still doing clean in an infusion center or in um in in some kind of clinic, but not in an acute care. Um, setting like an urgent care and ED because those likely will have some out of states and so you need to be careful and consider those mixed use.
0: Yeah, so then you're looking at perhaps virtual inventory or some type of, you know, very diligent retrospective charge capture review for your offsite locations that are part of a that have separate physical inventory so that you can make uh, a WAC or a non 340B purchase for those Medicaid patients that are on your your carve out list, I guess.
1: Yeah, and I didn't bring it up in the Hersa audit review because uh, we want to talk about it here, but that exact point you made actually showed up um, mm-hmm. for uh, the client I was with last week. We, we, you know, we the main states carved in, and, and they're they're pretty well isolated. I'll just say that so they, they don't have a ton of out of state, but you know, they are a, a a visitor state. People come in and visit, and so there is a chance they could have some out of state Medicaid. But we, but they did have a clean side infusion, and there was the question, well. Since you're carving out all the other states, how do you know you don't have an out-of-state infusion service? And we talked about the fact that when fusion is a little different, that's not an acute thing. I guess if someone happened to be visiting in that state for an extended amount of time, they might have to try and come in and get an infusion. But but they did look, um, and they just didn't have any out-of-state Medicaid in that clean site area. So we do recommend if you are doing clean site, but you're carving out. Multiple, you know, you're only carving in your state. Do have a process that says, okay, on a monthly basis, we're going to review um, all pairs for that location to make sure we don't have out of state Medicaid billing. And Greg, you're absolutely right. And if you identify anything, just make sure that you replace that drug, almost treat it like an emergency bar alone. You yeah. have to take care of the patient. Now you're going to repay that 340B um, dispense with a WAC or GPO if you're not subject to the GPO prohibition. So that's a very good call out because uh, that showed up on the Hearse audit. And fortunately, it's something we discussed on our annual audit and they had been doing. So we were able to talk through it. But um, if that's, that's not something you're familiar with, then that's
0: something you'd want to implement in your program. I mean, that, that, uh, that process to do a retrospective review of out-of-state um, activity, I think you also need to apply that in maybe a mixed-use virtual inventory because you may have patients that initially get uh, admitted to a hospital, they're in a self-pay status, uh, their accumulations go into your 340B bucket if they have an outpatient uh, encounter type, but then retrospectively the insurance Uh, Gets qualified, so the patient retrospectively qualifies for out-of-state Medicaid. So there may need to be some type of retrospective review of your uh, mixed use accumulations to ensure that any potential bills that were sent out with 340B purchased drugs are adjusted to account for your your out-of-state carve-out designations, right?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's a great point because because we always talk about that if you're just carving out entirely that you need that retrospective review process. In fact, that's something Harsel will ask for. Right. How do you make sure that you know an initial self-pay patient um, that you didn't know? Or you, and to your point, one way hospitals increase their dish percentage is by going after those self-pay patients, um, especially um, in in you know especially uh, hospitals that are really on that border. But they do it for everybody because you want some reimbursement. But if you qualify someone for Medicaid, you get a paperwork in, all the tax returns in, they qualify for Medicaid. Medicaid allows you to go back in time and bill for a certain period of time. And by doing so, you actually can increase your DISH percentage. So it is one of the strategies hospitals use to increase their DISH percentages and really just to get paid, to be honest, because in most of the cases, these are going to be charity care accounts. So if the patients qualify for Medicaid, then let's get them on it, right? So it it works out well. It's all good. But in that process, those initial accumulations might have showed up as self-pay. And be 340 be eligible. So you have to go, have a process to go back and reverse out any retro medicates. And I think to yeah. your point, many people show up in the ER in a trauma situation or some kind of accident. They just don't have their insurance card on them or they're not yeah. even coherent. They might not even be awake.
0: Yeah, It's um, John Doe's. You see, I've seen it quite occasionally with patients that come in through the ED as, as like a John Doe. So they're not entirely sure who the patient is, but that gets addressed and clarified kind of retrospectively. And, and then you've got to go back and make corrections to your accumulations. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, it's a real
1: quick side note. You just reminded me of something. When I was the ops manager at, um, at one of our hospitals in the health system I used to work at, for a flagship, it was our big trauma center. Uh, one of my jobs as the ops manager for a central pharmacy was to take all of the... Um, we had Accudos at the time, um, dispensing records for, and what the nurses did was they just gave the best description they could of the trauma. So it'd be like man versus horse, right? So a so guy that got kicked in the head by a horse is unconscious. That's all I had. So then I had to go through all of the clinical notes for the actual patients when they once they got the patient information to find the patient that around that time that had that. In their summary yeah. by the doctor, I had to reconcile the ACUDOS report to our EHR because when they come in, they have no idea. And yeah. so, you know, in, you know, car versus motorcycle, that th- those would be my descriptions. I don't get into some of the weirder ones, but I saw some really odd stuff um, come in like, in. like Clue. Yeah, right? it, was, it was. It was one, one of the most um, fun or most interesting parts of my job at the time was to do those reconciliations. Totally unrelated to Medicaid. I just had to throw yeah. that in there.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's uh, pivot to carving strategy. So you mentioned, you know, if a covered entity is going to carve in, you got to make that election on Opace and you do that at the sta- state specific level. So which states you're going to carve in, you have to list on HRSA's Medicaid exclusion file. Um, just to recap, the, the MEF or the Medicaid exclusion file is published by OPA at the beginning of the calendar quarter. And that's based on information that's submitted through the OPA database by the 15th of the prior month. So we're approaching July 1 now where HERSA uh, will publish a new Medicaid exclusion file everything that's added or removed or edited on uh, the OPA database up until June 15th is going to be reflected on the July 1 Medicaid exclusion file. So really, a good process is making sure that you're updating your Medicaid billing information as you see changes throughout the year, at least on a quarterly basis. Yeah.
1: Now, if if everyone's listening to all the podcasts, remember that was one of the things we caught out in our last podcast because we knew that this podcast would drop so we're recording today on the 14th of june but uh, this podcast will drop on june 19th so if you hadn't done this and it's june 19th or later and you listen to this you missed the quarter um because everyone always remembers oh it's everyone thinks oh i have to do it at the opening quarter so you know the July 1st to July 15th. You've got to remember this, just like Greg said, this one's different and a lot of people forget. So if you already missed it, and by the time you're listening to this, then then I mean anytime between now and basically September 15th, you get it done and, and then you'll be on the MEF for October 1st. Um MEF. So that's the next time cycle. But but do do try and remember that and we'll try and remind everybody on the podcast that will drop before September 15th again to update your MEFs if you need to and to double check those numbers.
0: Good. Yeah. So you, you make the carve-in election, you're going to carve in a specific state, then you start listing your billing information. So what type of information from your billing department do you need to gather to appropriately reflect your carve-in status on the MEF?
1: Okay. So this one's critical because we've seen people Put the wrong NPIs on there, wrong numbers on there. It's your NPI numbers and through your Medicaid billing numbers that you actually use for billing. And the way, so we would ask your billing department what numbers do we use for billing. And then I would verify, so trust would verify, pull UBO4s for all of your locations. That's that's the best way to do it, right? And here's why, because that's what Hearst is going to do. They're going to ask for a UBO4 for your parent and every single child site. So you need to know if there's any locations that have a different NPI. Now, in general, for a hospital, almost every all locations use the hospital's main NPI, so it should be the main one, but there are a few exceptions. Some clinic types do use different NPI's, and they can't be considered provider-based departments. The best example I have is rural health clinics. Rural health clinics, if you're in a rural area, so if you're a soul community hospital or a critical access hospital and you have a rural health clinic, it's quite likely that they're using a different NPI number from the hospital, which is okay. What that means is you have to list both those NPI numbers. But there's some other department types that may have a different NPI number. Some people have a different NPI number for different things. So make sure you know what NPI numbers are being used for outpatient billing. Um, We've seen some people use a different number for inpatient versus outpatient. But in general, it's one NPI. But make sure you know for sure, because that's how people end up getting a finding on a hearse audit, by not having all their NPI's used for billing. Um, Before I jump to NBNs, anything else, um, Greg, on NPI?
0: Yeah, I'm just thinking about this now. So if you you have an RHC that has its own unique NPI, and that RHC sits off-site, so it's registered as a child site, would you suggest listing the NPI both for the child site registration and put the NPI on the parent 340B ID as well?
1: You know, I, I think I've seen people do it both ways. I, yeah. I think the requirement from HERS is that you just list it on the location that's using it. So as long as the parent doesn't ever use it on its own, then yeah. I think you're fine to just list it under the Rural Health Clinic child site. But to your point, you know, some critical access hospitals don't have their rural health clinics offsite. It's just, you know, they have one big building. It's like a wing of their hospital. I've seen that actually quite often. And so it's the same address. And so they don't separately register that rural health clinic. So in that case, you would need to put both NPIs under the parent.
0: Yeah, your acute care and your RHC NPIs will be listed as two separate NPIs under your 340B, your parent 340B ID. OK, yeah.
1: good. And we should mention also think you if you have an in-house retail pharmacy um, and they have an NPI, and you're carving in in your retail pharmacy. I know we didn't get into retail too much much yet, but that also should
0: be listed under your parent. Good. All right. What about Medicaid billing numbers? Because I think this is a point of confusion for a lot of clients that I've worked with where they have Medicaid billing numbers listed on the Medicaid exclusion file. But when you look at UBO4s, the hospital is only billing using the NPI taxonomy. So what are your thoughts around inclusion or omission of Medicaid billing numbers?
1: Yeah, I, I actually have a decent amount of thoughts on this. For the longest time we would just see the Medicaid billing numbers. And we say MBNs, by the way, um, And in short, especially when in, in we do report writing things, but those Medicaid billing numbers, um, they're there. And, and we always look and say, okay, no harm, no foul. You added them, great. Um, not a big deal if you're not using them. I, I guess if you have them, you know, it's fine to leave them. Up until recently, um, I was working with one of our, our hospital clients and we actually checked with billing and said, hey, can we just confirm these Medicaid billing numbers are correct? Because as part of the HRSA audit, you actually have to, provide some information about your MBNs and your MPIs and billing has to report. And the Hearst Auditors, so here's another key. Hearst auditors have been asking. So you're not using MBNs for billing, but you have them listed. We just need to see like your your Medicaid approval letter that lists those Medicaid billing numbers. Well, for one of our clients, they had kind of fat fingered the Medicaid billing number, right? And it's not something because they're not on youB4s so There's no really way for us to check, other than to ask for this this billing document. So it's something we do now. Um, we do now. We didn't before, um, previously. But so that's a key. If you're going to add them, so first of all, if you're not using them, you don't have to add them to your MEF. So Hersus kind of stated that you only have to put the numbers you're using for billing. Now, if there's a chance that you would put the Medicaid billing number on there for some reason, then you'd want to go ahead and add it. But if, if billing says, no, we would never, ever put that on there. We only put the NPI, then you technically don't have to put the MBNs on. Opaque and therefore the Medicaid exclusion file. But if you want to or you have them on there, please confirm those numbers are accurate and that they're that's actually your MBNs because if HERSA asks for those letters and they're not there or the number's different, then you will likely take a MEF finding for listing an incorrect um, number on your MEF database. And so, kind of a ticky tack thing. It wouldn't result in payback because it, it because it doesn't cause a duplicate discount, but you'd still take a finding for it. So just something to check if you're going to put those MBNs on there.
0: Yeah. I know we, we talked about state-specific billing requirements earlier. So there are some states that have said, look, we don't look at the Medicaid exclusion file to identify claims that we're going to exclude from the rebate invoicing process. You need to use a claim-level UD modifier or an SE modifier or a JGTB modifier on the HixPix codes for your 340B purchase drugs. So, so what are the requirements for a, uh, a covered entity that's carving in in a state that doesn't use the Medicaid exclusion file? Still have to keep it up to date, correct?
1: Yeah, um so so you'll take a finding if you're billing so say you're uh in New Mexico, just like in New Mexico and, and you are billing Texas. Texas is one of those states that does not use a UD modifier, they use a U8 modifier. And so even if you're using the U, if, even if you're applying the U8 modifier um correctly, you still have to list Texas on the Medicaid exclusion file. So remember a couple years back, um I can't rem- can't remember exactly when Greg, but Hersa changed it. Were for N- because MBNs were always state specific, but NPI wasn't. You would just list NPI numbers, and it it wasn't state specific. So once you had the NPI numbers on there, you're good, right? NPI or NPI numbers. Then they changed it to well, you now you have to be specific by state and yeah. list the NPI number. And now you're pretty much listing the same NPI number over and over and over again for every state you bill. So if you bill all 50 states plus DC, um, and then you're gonna have 51 NPI number listings with every state plus DC listed. Um, I'm leaving out Puerto Rico and. American Samoa and Guam and all those places. But but in theory, that's what you have to do. So you want to make sure if you are going to bill out-of-state Medicaid that you know what those modifiers are. Um, that you can meet all the requirements and that you specifically listed that state on your Medicaid exclusion file. So you do have yeah. to do all that to, to avoid any findings from HERSA. HRSA
0: audit. Yeah, that's because that's a HRSA requirement. And even though the state may not look at the Medicaid exclusion file, there is an obligation to inform HERSA when you're carving in. And you're right, back in, it was like 2019, 2000, like end of 2019, 2020, HERSA updated the OPA database to account for state-specific carving determinations. And we saw like single digit rate of Medicaid exclusion file findings jumped to 30% um, over the last couple of years. So almost a third of covered entities that are having findings have issues with reflecting their out-of-state Medicaid billing numbers on the Medicaid exclusion file. So it gets really complicated if you've got numerous child sites and you're carving in uh, a variety of -of out-of-state Medicaid in your 340B program.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and so, I mean, that's the key there. Just identify the states you are going to bill and then get the modifiers right. And then we'll say it does get a little complicated. We're seeing a few more states decide to adopt the Medicare modifiers, which are like the JG-TB modifier process. Yep. And, and that's tricky because when Medicare does it, it's just for specific status indicator K drugs, right? JG is for status indicator K. TB is for status indicator G. But for the states, they actually need the modifiers applied to more than just status indicator K and G drugs. And so it's not the same. Um, We were just working with a a client in Indiana, uh, doing good work there just to get them implemented and, you know, the real engaged team. But that's something we have to go through is back and forth with Indiana Medicaid is, okay, so you want us to apply the TB modifier to all drugs? Yes, we don't care which one, just apply it to everything. So so working with billing, right, we've got to get Medicare correct because Medicare still requires those billing um, modifiers. And then the state wants... We're just going with the TB modifier for all 340B drugs, um, and so we we kind of ignore the fact that it's a JGTB. We're just saying, okay, that's just a modifier, just like a UD modifier or U8 modifier or Ohio's SE modifier. Um, and so again, probably the take home message there is just know your st- every state that you want to bill, especially if you're in a border state. So like if you're in if your city is in the border of another state. Double check what that says because more than likely you've got those Medicaid patients coming over crossing the border and make sure you know what those requirements are and make sure you list them specifically and then get billing to make sure that when the, that particular insurance is billed that you get it correct. Um, now, Greg, I, I think we should mention, though, a lot of organizations decide to outsource out-of-state Medicaid billing, and there's a few different firms out there that actually talk to a few I'll be honest, they do great at trying to get you reimbursement for out-of-state Medicaid. They're not so good at making sure that the modifiers and AAC billing is done correctly if it's fee-for-service Medicaid. So, so if you're using a vendor, it's still incumbent on you to understand what are they doing and how are they doing it and if you need to include or exclude um, those states based on their processes. But I'll tell you, in general, we, we end up recommending just excluding out-of-state Medicaid and making sure you have a process to not accumulate those claims in your accumulator.
0: Yeah, so that's you're you're really looking at a, a some type of operational step by blocking accumulations through your TPA or by excluding those uh, charges from your EHR's charge file heading into your your splitter, right? Right, right. And um and
1: and you know and, and most people just end up excluding all those out of state medicates if if you're looking for a maybe cost savings initiative. And I always tell people you if you've got a pharmacy student or a pharmacy resident rotation. One fun project is to say, let's look at all of our exclusions. Let's go pull um, the actual remittance on those and see which of those actually got paid. Because if you're excluding accumulations for out-of-state Medicaid and those Medicaid states didn't pay you, right, maybe because you're not signed up or whatever and they're high-cost drugs, you can technically accumulate drugs, right, because the issue is you can't bill Medicaid and buy 340B unless you're carving in. So if you don't actually get reimbursed or you don't uh, don't get reimbursed from Medicaid, they can't seek a rebate, which means you can't accumulate. So – so it'd be a fun project to see, you know, out of the, all the ones you're excluding or carving out, are any of those recapturable if you didn't get reimbursement or if you get denied reimbursement or if, if just, you know, uh, that particular drug didn't get reimbursed on for whatever reason.
0: Interesting. All right. A couple of other miscellaneous questions here. One um, has to do with charge master updates and what the expectations are for reflecting the correct NDC on billing forms when you're carving it.
1: Yeah, so, so another thing that we're seeing on a lot of Harsa audits, um, right? So HRSA will pull UBO4s or um, for clinics, HICFA 1500 forms, looking for modifiers, looking for the NPI number, Medicaid billing number, potentially, although it's primary NPI, as we've mentioned. But then what we've seen some HRSA auditors doing is actually looking at the, NP- the NDC that's sitting on the bill, right? So now we're talking about the NDC, and most systems are set up where you have a charge master within your billing system and your, your medical record that has a primary NDC per um, CDM code, right? So it, so for a particular drug, it's gonna get a, C, a, a charge uh, drug code um, in that master. And then there's gonna be, and there's gonna have multiple NDCs sitting under it if there's generics or um, multiple drug NDC uh, types in there. And it's gonna select one as the primary, right? That's the one that, that the, that's, the decision was made. This is the one that's gonna drive our billing. This is the one we're primarily using. Well, we know because of drug shortages. We also know because of 340B pricing and some other things that sometimes that NDC doesn't stay the same, and we switch NDCs, and we do a better job of updating our TPA and our and our crosswalks and our TPA to accumulate correctly. But sometimes we don't update the billing charge master, and when a HERSA auditor sees that the NDC being billed is different from the NDC being accumulated, it's going to cause some questions, right? The question, and the main question is, well, did you accumulate the wrong NDC or did you bill the wrong NDC? Now. Your best course during a HRSA audit is that you accumulated the right NDC and you build the wrong NDC because you can't get a finding for billing the wrong NDC in a HERSA audit. Now there could be some other issues for that, but not during a HERSA audit. So that's typically the course we go down. Um, so it is important that you understand that. And so we do recommend as much as possible align your um, your billing NDC with your accumulated NDC. And and for me, in fact, anyone who knows Roxy on our team, Roxy and I worked together when I was at um, Intermountain uh, at my hospital, and she would that was her one of her jobs. She was one of our, incredible database text. That's why we work with her today because she's awesome. And her function, one of her functions, one of her many functions was to look at the NDC that we had in our crosswalk for accumulation for 340B. The NDC we use for billing, she would update it so they lined up. And we'd also make sure those NDCs were in our um, AccuDose cabinets or in our automation cabinets because we're doing scan on restock for safety reasons. So she makes sure all those three things are aligned. within our program. And that really helped us. Um, and it was one of our key we wanted to do. So not something that we see a lot of people doing, but we do recommend it. So just you don't have to ask those questions, which could result in possibly them identifying that you accumulated the wrong NDC. So lining them as much as you can is, is, a, is a best practice if you can do it.
0: Great tip. Medicaid carve-in in the contract pharmacy space. Tell us what we should be thinking about or what the requirements are if we're going to use Medicaid fee-for-service uh, or dispense Medicaid for service patients 340b drugs in contract pharmacies
1: yeah so in you know in general most states actually say you need to to exclude it or carve it out um mm-hmm. some states are silent on it and what what her stance on contract pharmacy is that you do um exclude it or carve out i like to say exclude because i, I like to say carve in and carve out for what the hospital is doing yeah. so in contract pharmacy it should be excluded however there's an exception you can actually request to carve in contract pharmacy, but you have to submit documentation to HRSA and receive approval. And typically, that's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a form you can use. Um, I think Opex has that form. And then in there, it talks about you have to get a, you know, you really have to, have to talk about the state's processes, uh, what your process is, and how you're going to ensure that you're preventing a duplicate discount. And if HRSA approves that, they actually have, uh, people don't always know this, but if you actually look on um, OPACE, there is a report you can run that shows you all of the contract pharmacies. If you go to reports and files, there's a contract pharmacy carve-in report that you can run. And it's all of the contract pharmacies and covered entities that have petitioned HERSA to carve in contract pharmacy uh, for Medicaid. And, um, and, and it's actually listed on those report files. So, so you can't just make the decision to carve in contract pharmacy. You have to get HRSA's approval first, um, and they're going to vet your process.
0: All right, good. Anything else we missed, Rob? Any other pearls of wisdom you have on your notes?
1: You know, I'm, I think we've hit just about everything. I mean, I think so. The biggest, the last thing is just actual acquisition costs because, again, I think we talked about a little, but AAC is not a a three forty b Hersh audit risk. In fact, I don't. I rarely see them actually looking at the price bill. So we always tell people they're an audit. We look at it because we want you to be compliant with your state. Because yep. there could be repercussions for not getting AEC right, and we do see AEC not being done correctly, uh, if, you know, across the board sometimes. Because it's a hard thing to do to have a second price list for NDCs, and how does billing actually know? Okay, we're going to use this secondary price list versus not. And right, we pre- for, primarily do that for fee for service, not managed Medicaid. Although we should point out there's that bill going through um, the the bill that um, uh, uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers has uh, going bill. through yeah. the House. That could change that or make it voluntary, so that that could change. But in general, the AECs apply the fee-for-service Medicaid claims. Now, the one thing I'll state is even though it's not a HRSA audit risk, it is important that you follow your state's guidance or requirements for this because we have seen at least one state, and we're going to reference California. California actually required most of their covered entities to do do a self-audit over the past few years. They actually started it just before COVID, kind of put it on pause, ended up finishing it kind of during COVID. but they had everyone go back and look to make sure that everyone billed them the correct AAC. That's actual acquisition costs, which means it's your 340 b price. Um, for the administered drugs, it was just AAC. For retail drugs, it's AAC plus a dispensing fee. And if you didn't do it correctly, they actually had you pay back the difference. Um, and you have to calculate that in the self-audit. So we haven't heard of any other states doing that. But you know, as states you know, struggle more and more financially, you know, I think they're, they might look at California and say, hey, they did this self-audit. They were requiring AAC. They recovered quite a few dollars through this process. They might do the same. So, so even though not, it's not a hearse audit risk. Strongly recommend if you're an a, if your state requires it that you figure out a way to get AAC um, on those bills uh, to make sure that you don't run that risk of having to pay back these dollars to the state. Oh, and one thing I should mention, since we're talking about CMS, unlike 340B, when you have payback, there is a risk that the state could um, could actually levy a penalty. That penalty is typically a 50% penalty. Yep. So, say you found out, okay, yeah, we've got about you know a million dollars of AAC difference that we didn't pay, so you owe a million dollars, you actually could end up paying $1.5 million um, as the penalty. So there is potentially a penalty for not getting AAC right if the states want to go after them.
0: Also good tip, great. All right, what about the future, Rob? Where's your crystal ball? Tell us where you think HRSA may be going or you know, other agencies may be going in trying to maybe standardize Medicaid duplicate discount prevention strategies. Are we going to get yeah. a unified standard claim level modifier? Are we going to be using a third-party data clearinghouse for preventing duplicate discount? What do you think?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. Great. I almost want to turn there. I'm going to have you answer that first. Um, so, so we're, And we have some um, legislative bills going through that's, that could impact this, right? There's Because I think there's a few different ways this could happen. One is HRSA gets rulemaking authority. Now, we don't have a bill that, that's, that would do that right now, but say they did. I definitely think Managed Medicaid then gets some um, update, uh, rural updates. I do agree that they could look at how duplicate discounts occur and, and go with a single format. Um, I, I personally like modifiers better than NPI because the all-in doesn't always work because all in's not always the case for many covered entities, especially on the retail side. It's hard to be all-in on NPI when you're an open-door pharmacy. So it does create problems. But I do think the clearinghouse Right, so we have two things for the future. One is – just mentioned that um, Kathy McMorris-Rogers bill that uh, is really around PBM discrimination but has a component in there about managed Medicaid um, needing to um, collect actual acquisition costs or, or pay actual acquisition costs, or they can voluntarily pay more, but that requires that update. And we've covered that in the previous podcast, so I won't get into detail, but that could definitely change managed Medicaid and the need for AAC, and some managed Medicaids might jump on this AAC bandwagon if it becomes an opportunity. The, the other thing in those bills that we're seeing, like you just mentioned, is the clearinghouse. right? That's, people are calling for a clearinghouse for, me, for Medicaid. I'd have to imagine they're also going to do it for Medicare because now or we IRA. have this other thing, yeah. right? Yeah, the Inflation Reduction Act, where we're going to need um, – Medicare is gonna, going to need to know all of the 340B claims. So I think if that goes through in the bill, I think that clearinghouse could be the new mechanism, and maybe we don't have to do the modifiers and all these things because the clearinghouse will, well, I guess, for lack of a better term, clear that up. For us, um, what are your thoughts? Anything different, or
0: you agree on that? No, I, I haven't heard anything differently. But I think it's it's unlikely we'll see standardized um, modifier uh, requirements. Like I th- think some some folks have said, oh, it'd be just nice if we could just go with the JG or TB modifier. But it's it's hard to imagine that actually being executed. I I think the the data clearinghouse is going to be necessary for CMS to identify their Um, their, their Medicare claims for adjusting the inflation rebate penalties. It, it, my guess is that you could make that clearinghouse a dual purpose for both identifying Medicare and Medicaid claims, but um, that is yet to be seen, I guess.
1: Well, and the tricky part is, you know, at least for the administered drug side, it's a JG or TB modifier that they're, they seem to be going with. And, and, and Medicaid agencies' formularies might be different in what they pay. So where you know Medicare kind of ignores status indicator and drugs, quite a few of those end drugs Medicaid is paying on. Um, and so it's a little different, right, than, than the process that Medicare uses. And so we'd have to see an update to the JGTB modifiers so, to work for Medicaid. Um, yeah. So I think this clearinghouse thing will be a question. Are they going to still use that? Or are they going to do something else? And, of course, we still haven't heard. And I think Medicare was – or CMS was asking, hey, what do you guys – what should we do for retail? Because they're they're pitching the idea of the code twenty for real time adjudication or the um you know the N1, yeah, N1 N one
0: yeah, transaction.
1: Yeah, the transaction you can submit after the retro. But everyone's saying that's gonna be a heavy lift, contract pharmacies aren't gonna be able to do the, either one of those on a regular basis, so it's gonna be inconsistent. And so I think HRSA, or CMS is still trying to figure out well, what what's the best mechanism for the retail slash contract pharmacy side for? For Medicare and you know hopefully Medicaid claims as well. But but I agree if they're going to figure it out for Medicare, if, it'd be nice if they figure it out for Medicaid and that became the process for preventing duplicate discounts because then it would take it take a lot of that workload off of the covered entities and they could focus on diversion and and just you know compliance with other aspects of the program.
0: And and then as you mentioned the 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 McMorris Rogers bill, if you know I don't know what the incentive is for a managed care organization to not. Reimburse at AAC. So if you know, the majority, the vast majority of MCOs move to an AAC reimbursement methodology for 340B claims, we, you know, will we see a shift at the provider level to more covered entities carving out in the future? I don't know.
1: Yeah, what, what we do know is from California, New York, who have both implemented that on the retail side, that it's 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 become very very. Uh, catastrophic for our community health centers because they rely on some of that managed Medicaid 340B savings on the retail. And removing that actually has some pretty bad you know, consequences for patient care and their ability to provide some of the services they've been providing. So I'm a little worried about some of that going through that would impact the FQHCs even more. And that's also true for some of our hospitals um, with with large Medicaid populations. Yeah, um, th- it's gonna it's gonna hurt
0: on top major, of the manufacturer major,
1: restrictions already.
0: Yeah, major erosion of 340B savings. One on the contract pharmacy side because of manufacturer restrictions, but potentially on um, the the hospital side regarding managed Medicaid's uh, shift to AAC reimbursement. So yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. Well, so hopefully, I think we've covered all of our Medicaid pieces, but and I'm glad we could do it because there's so many pieces to Medicaid. Uh, and duplicate discount. Um, and again, high, an area of high findings on hearse audits. So yeah. Just want to make sure we cover those as best we can for everybody. And and again, you know, if you have any questions around this or you're like, gosh, we're not sure if we fully understood that, let us know. More than happy on to call or answer by email. Um, Greg, I always forget. Do you want know, to remind everybody what our uh, email is?
0: Yeah, so our, our email is 340 unscripted at spendmen.com. So we look at that, you know, routinely. So if you've got questions or if you've got comments or maybe you have, you know, topics that we talked about today or we missed today during our Medicaid discussion, zip us an email and, and let us know your thoughts.
1: Yeah, and even though we have one more podcast dropping before the conference um looking forward to seeing anyone that w- will be at D.C. for the 340 Coalition. Please stop by the booth. Say hi. Greg and I will both be there. Um, come take a picture with us. We'd love to be able to put that on social media. That would be fun. And, and, yes, it's scary. I bring my mic if you want to be on the pod and share something, uh, any, any uh, lessons or sessions you attended that you really enjoyed. I want to just share for the group and you know, just hear your voice on the podcast. Uh, stop by and get recorded with us.
0: Excellent. All right, Rob, it's good catching up with you today. Great conversation. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks uh, with our last podcast recording before we meet in person in Washington. So stay tuned, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you the next time. Take care. That's great. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.